titled the message, When the Lord Raises His Voice. There's a really neat dynamic in this passage. It's not about God's word. I mean, obviously, it has to be something to do with God's word. That's what his voice does. That's what his voice creates, right? That's what his voice communicates. But this psalm isn't like Psalm 1, where the man is blessed who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. And it's not like Psalm 19, where it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Right? It's not, it's not one that talks about his word. It's not like Psalm 119, 176 verses, all about the power of God's word. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Right, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things from your word. Those three psalms have to do with the content of God's message. But this is a really special psalm because in this psalm, it's speaking of the voice of God. It's speaking of the voice of God. And so the title of the sermon, when the Lord raises his voice, and then I have three things this morning that we know or we can see or I did when I looked at God raising his voice. And the first thing that I saw when the Lord raised his voice, is that it is heard in heaven. It is heard in heaven. Verses 1 and 2, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. These are angels. These are mighty ones. Some of your translations might say mighty ones. This is speaking of these heavenly beings, these these angels. And so the, the voice of God is so incredible. It is so magnificent that heaven is the reach of it. Think about that as we read it. This psalm begins with a command. This psalm begins with a command. He says, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord. What is the psalm telling? It's commanding angels, right? The word ascribe means to give or to set or to place. So, so place glory and strength where the Lord is or, or set the Lord up where glory and strength is. Ascribe to the Lord or set the Lord glory. Do his name. It's a command. And this command carries with it the idea of, of focusing the wonder, focusing the imagination upon the Lord. So the, the psalm opens up in a, in a heavenly kind of audience. And these angels are to um, take their imagination, their wonder, their thoughts, their contemplations, and place all of that on the throne of the Lord. All of their direction, all of their attention is to be placed there. It's a command. When we read this psalm, it starts so far high above us. As if a, a window into heaven itself is being opened and the psalmist is saying, hey, listen, this word of God or this voice of God is a heavenly thing. And for me, this is where it hits me. I wrote this, consider how this idea is meant to work its way down to us. If angels are commanded to actively present their awe and their wonder in an audible and passionate way before the Lord, how much more for us? How much more for us? As we read this, David didn't write this psalm 
for the audience of the angels. He wrote this psalm to be collected in the book of psalms that he had presented to the priests so that they could lead the people of God to worship. And so what we have here is this command for the angels so that the people, when they hear it, they're saying, oh my goodness, this is something that we're a part of. When the Lord raises his voice, it's heard in heaven. And this psalm is all about praise. It's all about praise. This is one of the few psalms where there is only a theme of glory to the Lord. That's what it is. Everything about this makes God bigger, heavier, even more terrible, and awesome. When we read this, this psalm sets apart God for us in a way that is super heavy. The worship of this Lord is exalted way outside our temporal realm. He isn't simply an earthly deity. He is universally to be praised. This praise is for the one who is glorious. This is praise for the one who is strong. I thought it was interesting as I read it that when he tells the the angels to praise this God, he didn't, like other psalms, go through a list of all the things that God had done to praise him. This praise was directed specifically for this God. There's a great structure here. First, we talked about the parallelism. Look look at what it says in, in the first phrase. First, David emphasizes that the angels need to be giving something. How significant is it that angels, the highest created being in, in all existence, has to give something to someone? So that's the first hit on the nail of praise. The second one, David says that they need to give glory and strength to the Lord. Meaning that they need to give to the Lord what is most glorious and most powerful. Boom, boom. And then third, David says that they must give God the glory that he has earned. He is this great God. And it says, ascribe in verse two, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. He is this great God. When we take these three phrases, one after another, Hammering the point home with an almost, almost just tangible aggressiveness. Ascribe to the Lord this. Ascribe to the Lord that. Ascribe to the Lord. We can see that it is very important for the angels to make certain to place their admiration and their passions squarely in the activity of making God's value known. Angels, ascribe to the Lord glory. This is really important to David. I thought this was interesting. In a culture where there were all kinds of gods, David was living in a culture where there were all kinds of gods, all manner of idols that were to be worshipped and exalted, household gods that represented the sun, the moon, seasons, crops, storms, and creatures. David specifically repeats this God's name four times in these verses. 18 times in all, David thinks this is important that you and I understand that God's voice or God raises his voice and it is heard in heaven. That sets our perspective. It it points our eyes heavenward. This psalm has a very, very particular focus. It's crucial. 
that we notice the 18 times that God's name is mentioned here. Look with me. Just you have your Bibles open. Look in verse 1. Ascribe to Yahweh or Jehovah. He says it twice. Not just a generic God. Not just the word God. But angels give God, Yahweh, glory. Verse 2, ascribe to Jehovah or Yahweh. That's what it means when the word Lord is in all caps. That's how they would, they would point out that this is Jehovah's name. As you read it in the Bible, when that word is all caps, it's speaking of his specific name. He says, worship Jehovah. In verse 3, the voice of Jehovah. Also in voice, verse 3, the Lord or Jehovah. Verse 4, twice, the voice of Jehovah. The voice of Jehovah. Verse 5, the voice of Jehovah. Jehovah. Verse 7, the voice of Jehovah, the voice of Jehovah. Verse 8, the Jehovah shakes the wilderness. Verse 9, the voice of Jehovah makes the deer give birth. Verse 10, the uh, Jehovah sits enthroned over the flood. Jehovah sits enthroned as king forever. May Jehovah give strength. May, the, may Jehovah bless his people. David is really making this big deal. This psalm is for the one God who reigns over all gods. It is a psalm for the biblical God, the creator God, the sustainer God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the God of this psalm. And so we we need to be really careful as we read it because David has made a point to say, his name over and over again. And this is a really big deal. This psalm is for the one who is above all the creatures. And this is the God who is above all, or the the creatures that are above every other creature, the angels. It is that kind of a hierarchy. This is the God we're talking about. Throughout the Bible, God emphasizes the significance of his name. There's a whole commandment dedicated to taking his name correctly. One of the Ten Commandments God uses to say, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Why? Because it's important. Today when Geneva left, gave her a hug, we prayed. I gave her another hug, hugged her for probably 15 minutes. Didn't want to let her go. She got in the car and I said, hey baby, don't forget whose daughter you are. Wherever you go in this world, I just want you to remember one thing. Remember your name, whose daughter you are. Because in that is captured all of our parenting, right? All of our walking with her, all of our teaching her. That is who she is. She's my daughter. That's the impact of God's name. We don't just serve God with a little G. We don't agree with Oprah Winfrey that we serve the God of our own understanding. That's not how it works. This is an important God. Jesus Christ's name. His name itself is Jehovah saves. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. His name is important. And so as we look at this, We need to understand that the voice of the Lord is heard in heaven and it's very distinct. It's very particular. The second thing about his, when he raises his voice, we're going to see in verses three through nine that it is dangerous. If you're taking notes, write in there dangerous. 
There's a reason why the book of Proverbs opens up with the passage that says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because our God is very scary. This is a, this is a truth that needs to be really emphasized, right? We don't invite people to Jesus so that they can get a good friend, right? We don't invite Jesus so, so that he can give them a hug and make them feel better. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that he himself became sin. He died. The wrath of God was revealed from heaven against the sin, and he carried that on the cross. When God raises his voice, it's very, very dangerous. Look at this in, in these, in these uh, seven verses. Look at all of the things that the voice of the Lord does. This isn't the word of God doing. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was, and all this stuff. This is, this is a different kind of dynamic. This is the reality that there was something happened in our house, um, and uh, somebody got hurt. And it was one of those moments where we didn't know how, how, hard, how bad it was. And um, somebody, I don't, remember, I don't even remember what happened. There was blood and, and, and one of the children was, was kind of in, in distress. And when Amy found out about it, she just got hysterical. And everybody was talking at once. And, and I was trying to assess the situation. But I couldn't because, what's, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's going on? See, what's going on? You know? And all of these words are coming and, and going and going. And, and I don't remember what I said. And I'm on mic, so I'm not going to say what I said as loud as I did. But I did. I was like, everybody shut up. Just shut up. But it wasn't the words I said. It was the fact that I was having to speak louder than everybody else in the room so that everybody else would shut up so that we could evaluate what was going on. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, now I try hard not to yell at my kids Right. But sometimes and maybe you'll drive by the house and you'll hear me yelling. And, and I just want to assure you that it's because I have loud kids. And in order for me to be heard, I have to be a little bit louder than them for that moment to get everybody's attention. But this is what we see here. We're not talking about God's word. We're talking about his voice. That when God raises his voice, when he does speak, it is dangerous. Is dangerous. I mean, as we read this in the, in the idea of the parallel passages, it's like rolling thunder. I mean, it says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. We know the word of God is powerful. There are time and time again in the Bible that it says God's word is powerful like a hammer. It's like a fire. But here it says that his voice is powerful. It's like thunder. It's full of majesty. Every phrase pounding our senses like thunder that pounds our ears. And this is important because this isn't just a God speaking. This is the God speaking. There's a very real raw aspect to the thought of hearing God's voice. Knowing that God has spoken in that moment after I get the attention of my family by raising my voice. There is a silence. Nobody necessarily, some of my boys might be dumb enough to keep talking, but in reality, everybody is just like, oh my gosh, dad's got, dad, dad's saying something, right? This is kind of the picture that this psalm ought to give us. 
This is what God's voice does. It's powerful. It breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars, makes the Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. This is God's voice. It's a dangerous voice. It's interesting. There's a movement to this psalm. If you look in verses 3 and following, it looks like it starts out over many waters. Right. So as David's looking at it, maybe he's thinking about the time he, he was standing on the shore of the Mediterranean looking out over this terrible storm and the clouds are black and they raise up from the from the earth up into the heavens and they're rolling and rolling and the wind is just massively working and, and he can see this this reality and he can hear the thunder coming off of the ocean and it's just shaking everything. And so it moves from there across the Lebanon and, and, and through um, the different areas of the coastal regions. And the picture that we see is very tornadic. I mean, look what it does. His voice moves through the coastal region, destroying great trees and causing so much destruction that it's as if the very land is shaking and moving. And it's important that we remember that this is a poem. David is trying to communicate something with this picture. Some kind of a feeling. Every one of us, I think, have probably stood in the way of a tornado or a terrible storm. So much so that it's coming and you're like, this is the picture, the feeling that that David is trying to, to work into us. The voice of the Lord is like that. The unfathomable, the unconquerable, the uncontrollable, that is God's voice. His voice is so much more than thundering. As it moves across the land, lightning flashes and explodes everywhere. There's this power when God speaks. Animals hear it, and in their desperation, they give birth. It is so fantastic that it causes birth to come on the deer. The leaves are ripped from the trees. Branches are strewn all over, and all that is left is an empty wasteland. Think about that. That's at the voice of God. It is dangerous. It's dangerous. All that can be said by those who observe it is glory. That's what it says in verse 9. And in his temple all cry, oh, glory. Have you ever done that? Have you ever seen that? Hannah and Jeff just bought a house that uh, is in an area that was destroyed by the uh, tornado last year. And it went right through, destroyed their house. So they rebuilt most of the house. And, and uh, when we were there to visit, you, it was just devastating. I don't know how many times I heard the kids just saying, oh my goodness. Wow. Look at what happened. Which is a perfectly healthy and appropriate response to that kind of thing. But in this passage, it's talking about God's voice. It's God's voice. Can you feel the parallelism's effect as it builds upon it? It builds upon it. It builds upon it so that you and I are left to say, wow, what a God. Be quiet, Dad's talking. Often, often we don't want to credit the Lord with this kind of a terribly frightening presence. We often tend to prefer what we see in 1 Kings 9. And you've probably heard this. 1 Kings 19, where he's talking to Elijah. And he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. 
And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there was a voice. There came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? So often we claim that this is how God speaks in this still small voice. But that's not the only way he speaks. When he revealed himself to Elijah, he did it that way because he had a point to make in Elijah's life. But this psalm tells us that there are times when his voice is in the thundering storm, the rock-crushing wind. God speaks the way he wants to, when he wants to. And that ought to cause us to pause. Because when God raises his voice, it really is dangerous. It really is. The way David describes it here, there's a sense of unconquerable energy. This is God speaking. Not just any God, but Yahweh. There's no way to control it. There's no way to subdue it. When God speaks, it's dangerous. In this passage, we also see uh, the, the, the power of God in the position of God, right? He is over the waters. Look what it says. It says the voice of God or the Lord is over the waters. He's not supported by anything. He supports himself. He is so far above. He's not connected to the waters. He's supported outside of the waters. Somehow or other, the picture that David paints for us here is that God is above something that would utterly destroy us. You and I are powerless in the face of the many waters. His voice is so powerful. When he raises his voice, we must listen. The third thing I have this morning is that when God raises his voice, it is enough. If you're taking notes, write that down. It is enough. Look at verse 10. This Lord, whose voice is majestic, he is seated, enthroned over the flood. He's not pacing around. He's not throwing a fit or posturing himself with threats. He is seated on his throne. The picture here is that he is completely stable and he is secure. The one whose voice rages majestically, the one who says, hey, everybody, be quiet. I have something to say. You must listen. This is the king who is sovereignly established in his throne. The one who speaks is sovereign. The one who speaks is seated over everything. And it says forever. He sits enthroned forever. David looks to this great king. And then he gives the last verse. May the Lord, this Lord, this speaking Lord, this powerful, terrible, dangerous one. May he give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And in this we see, oh my goodness. In all of this psalm, it culminates here with the reality of the most obvious and thundering voice of all. When God spoke in his most dangerous fashion, 
He spoke as a baby in a manger. We can hear his voice because Jesus Christ In Hebrews chapter 1, it says this, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. When God raises his voice, it is enough. It is enough. Think about with me how God's voice was heard in Christ. As a matter of fact, in John 12, Jesus said this, he said, um, Father, glorify your name. And then it says, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. That's such an interesting thing. Jesus is speaking. He speaks to his father. They hear his father speaking and they say, oh my gosh, that was thunder. What a great correlation to Psalm 29. In John chapter 7 The people testified that no one had ever had a voice like Jesus. No one had ever spoke like him. It's interesting in Mark chapter 4, he calms this storm with his voice. He brings peace and truth. Jesus Christ is the very word of God. Everything about Jesus Christ speaks the truth of Psalm 29. It's all right there. The entire New Testament is the record of this voice. The Gospels are the actual recording of what he said. This is his voice. This is what he said. The epistles are the interpretation of this voice. In the New Testament, we have this thundering, terrible, powerful, majestic voice of God. I have a couple of takeaways as we close today. I'd love for you to write them down and and think through them with me this week. But the first thing is, You and I need to really understand that God's voice is enough. Do we live this way? Do we live as if we believe that God's word, the Bible, is authoritative? Do we live that way? Do we do what it says? Do we believe what it says? Do we hold ourselves and others to the standard that it speaks of? Do we live as if God's voice is enough? How much of our thinking, how much of our opinions, and how much of our feelings are based on other voices? So many political voices. So many economic voices. So many, many medical voices. Oh, these crazy celebrity voices. Even our family traditions carry a voice, right? How many times do we hear our dad speaking to us? Do we hear our mom in our head? Oh, dad would say this, mom would say that. As we read this psalm, we need to understand God's voice is enough. Another thing we need to think about is that we need to make sure that the voice that we are hearing is his voice, spoken in his way, using his words. It's incredibly dangerous for us to listen to, pay attention to, and think about God speaking to us outside of his word. God does not speak to his people outside of the Bible. I want you to listen to what I'm saying. 
That's the point of Hebrews 1. He spoke in times past through his prophets, but he has now spoken to us by his son. And the parallel there is, this was not finished, but Jesus Christ has finished it. That's the point of Hebrews 1. Think about this. What do you do with somebody who tells you that they heard God's voice speaking to them? What do we do with that? Just this week, I heard the testimony of a man who said that he saw Jesus standing at the foot of his bed. And that Jesus told him something that he needed to tell his church. Listen, how in the world can that kind of thing be confirmed? What do we do with something like that? I want to say today, God doesn't work that way. He doesn't work that way. So the question might be right now, how can you say that, Steve? Who are you to determine what God can or cannot do? I'm nobody, really. But I want you to think about this with me. Imagine somebody standing right here where I am, telling you that God verbally had told them that you were supposed to do something. I want you to imagine that with me. I heard God's voice tell me that we need to do this. Imagine that. Now, how in the world are we supposed to respond to that? Are we supposed to take it at face value? Are we supposed to obey it? Meaning, are his words morally binding on us and our family because he heard some voice while he was doing something tell him to tell us that we have to do something? That's not how it works. That's not at all how it works. I mean, how are we supposed to know what he actually heard? How are we supposed to know who it was that was speaking to him? How does he know that was Jesus? Was Jesus wearing a name tag that said Jesus? I mean, how do we know what it was that he visualized? Think about how crazy that is. What do we do with it? I mean, we've all had our dreams where we've seen ridiculous stuff. I mean, my wife has had dreams and got up mad at me because of something I did in the dream. I don't know if that's ever happened to anybody else. But that's happened... <laughs> It's happened to me. And I'm like, hold on. Now, she's not here. I'm thankful for that, although she's probably listening to this. But think about how crazy that is. Now, it took her a little while to calm down, and then she realized that she can't be mad at me for something she saw in a dream. But that's what we're talking about here. It's the same level. Every one of us knows this. But when people couch it in the terms of Jesus spoke to me, we're supposed to say, oh my gosh. And if what they're actually saying is reflected in the message of the scripture, why do we need their testimony of their dream? If they're telling us something that's contrary to the scripture, then we know from scripture that we don't need to believe that. But if what they're saying does reflect the scripture. I don't need their testimony of God standing at the foot of their bed or speaking to their ear because I have it in the scripture. Today, I want you to think about this with me. The purpose of the recorded voice of God 
was so that we would have the truth and not need to rely on special words of revelation. Peter says it this way, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's saying, look, we were there and we saw Jesus and we heard this voice. This is Peter talking. So we're going to listen to Peter because he actually did see Jesus. And he actually did hear the voice from heaven. And look what he says, though. This is what's so incredible. Peter didn't say, because I saw Jesus and heard his voice, I'm telling you this. Look what, G- what Peter says. And we're in 2 Peter chapter 1, 19, if you want to make the note. But he said this, and we have the prophetic word, the scriptures, more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining. This morning, one of our takeaways needs to be, you and I have got to hear his voice. His voice. His voice. Somebody once told me that he had heard God speak to him. I asked him how he knew that, and he said that God spoke to him in the still small voice. He told me that he had just recognized his father's voice. But is that enough? No. That is not enough. This is enough. The same individual told me that I oughtn't put God in a box like that. Steve, you can't put God in a box like that. Psalm 29 helps me out. I'm not putting God in a box like that. God put himself in a box like that. God bound himself in this book. This is the limits of the revelation that we have of God. He did this. He gave us this record. He will never speak anything contrary to it. And he will never require anything that is not revealed within it. And it is the greatest presumption to claim to hear something outside of it. What a challenge for us. What a challenge for us. Today, the last thing, the last takeaway is right here. You and I must hear the the words of Christ. We must hear his voice. Faith comes by hearing the words of Christ. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. There is nowhere to hide from this great voice. It goes where we cannot go. It comes from where we cannot pass. It overcomes all the noises. It overcomes all the terrors of this world. It strips bare every hiding place and uncovers every secret. God's voice will be heard. And his voice is heard in the Bible. His voice strips away our self-centered pride. His voice strips away our vanity. His voice strips away our security and our safety nets. His voice overwhelms ours in such a drastic way that you and I are left with only one recourse. To plead with David, may the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Because if he does not speak for us, we are hopeless. This is such a humble and respectful understanding of who God really is. We cannot, we cannot demand anything of this thundering being. Our voice won't be heard. All we can do is bow our heads and bend our knees before him and repent. 
asking for his pardon. This is the message that Jesus came to voice. Remember in Mark? His sermon was this, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Think with me this week. Am I listening? Am I hearing God's voice? Is God's voice enough for me?